Michael, in today's episode, it's going to be a little different. Figure we should change things up a little bit. All right. All right. I'm always game. All right. So, you know, I figured maybe, I don't know, a little diversion from talking about like AI or Elon Musk. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's time for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're you're probably right. Um, so, okay. What are you thinking? Well, you know, okay. Aside from co-hosting Rocketship.fm with you, at one point, I had a podcast of my own. Uh, we started it at Product Collective. It was called Build, Launch, Scale. It was all about product management. We would talk to product leaders from all around the world and learn from the best of the best. And I kind of thought it would be fun to do a throwback episode sort of to that era, at least for me uh, as a podcaster, and dig in with somebody who is a leader in the product world, in the startup world, just sort of the general tech world, you know? So. Yeah. Anyway, that's what I was thinking. Uh, what do you think? Okay. So who is this mystery guest? <laughs> well, I was thinking about the very first product role that I ever had. And this person was actually very instrumental in that role, although he didn't realize it. And that was Ash Moria. Ah, Ash Moira. He's the creator of the Lean Canvas. And yeah, he's definitely somebody well known within the startup and tech world. He sort of came from the Lean startup movement, very similar mindset. He's published a few books as well. I like where you're going with this, Mike. So wait, what's the role he played in your very first product role? All right, we're going to get there eventually. But first, let's roll this intro. And when we're back, I can tell you more about it. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belsito. First, though, a quick word from our sponsors. As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, 
P-O-R-K-B-U-N.com forward slash RocketShipFM24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. So Ash Moira played a big role in your very first product role. There's a story here. What's the story, Mike? Yeah, well, I had this first product role. I was a director of product at this ticketing company. They had recruited me right after my e-funeral experience, and I had never had a product role before. And in fact, I remember when I was being interviewed for the role, sort of saying to them, like, look, I don't know if I'd be great for this. Like, I never went to school for product management. And they're like, oh, no, Mike. Nobody went to school for product management. You'll be fine. Don't worry <laughs> about it. But then yeah, I got the job and, and I had to figure out, okay, now what do I do? You know, like what happens when they figure out, I don't really know what I'm doing here. And of course, I learned that a lot of product people sort of feel that way. But, you know, I kind of felt like I had to teach myself what it meant to do real product management. And one of the ways I did that was by buying a book. And that book was Running Lean by Ash Moria. And anybody that worked with me at that time probably would remember seeing that book on my desk at different times, kind of dog-eared and ragged. And it, you know, really, I was trying to figure out what our version of product management could look like. And I was doing that by reading Ash Moria's book. And actually, there's more to the story. So don't let me end the episode without telling you uh, the rest of the story, but uh, but recently, I did catch up with Ash Moria, and we talked about a topic that's near and dear to his heart, which is, what does it mean to love the problem and not the solution? And I thought it'd be kind of fun to to replay much of that conversation here. All right. So where do you want to start? Well, again, since Ash's mantra is love the problem, not the solution, I thought that's probably the best place to start. I asked Ash in my conversation what does he really mean by love the problem? What does it mean to, all right. What does he really mean by love the problem? And here's his answer. And our natural state as product people, innovators, entrepreneurs is more love the solution. Um, and I would say that we don't start with problems, but very quickly in our heads, we connect the dots to a solution and that becomes the calling directive is how do I get this idea built, how do I get it in front of customers, how do I get it funded, uh, you know, all those things, green, green lit. So that becomes where all of our energy goes. And oftentimes, if we just look statistically, most first solutions miss the mark. And so that was a reminder for me to say, before we do all those things, building great products is, is the ultimate goal. 
we have to start with deeply understanding the problem. I think at a surface level, lots of people understand the intent behind starting with problems before solutions. But as we will talk about today, there are many layers to problems. And oftentimes getting to the root cause is ultimately going to be what is going to define that better solution or the best possible solution that is going to work. Ash calls it the innovator's bias, this tendency to go right to the solution. Entrepreneurs, product people, we're all prone to this innovator's bias. We want to solve problems, so we kind of gloss over the problems and instead go really deep to understand the problem so well, we immediately go to solutions. Yeah, and and look, I've fallen into that trap uh, of the innovator's bias before, I'll admit it. Let's be honest here, we all have. But it does raise the question of, if we know it's good to focus on problems, how do we know which problems to focus on? Yeah, that actually came up in my conversation with Ash. So certainly when we are, we're searching for problem solution combinations, that is an infinite search space. So even when we go to our customers, within the context that we'd like them to ask about problems, there are many other contexts and things that compete with their time and attention. And so if we just go in front of a customer and say, you know, tell me about your problems, just open-ended, that's that's like therapy session. Like you're not gonna really get anything meaningful. Um, so this is why I, in, in our world, when we work with teams, we always want to start with some constraints. Um, so I'll even go as far as to say, sketch out your idea. So we use a tool like the Lean Canvas and say, sketch out, sketch out your idea. And even if you have a solution in mind, let's back that up and see who is it for and what problems might you be tackling? And that gives us at least a search space where we have constrained. It doesn't mean that that is the right problem. And that's what I've learned over the years is that we may uh, you know, have a surface level problem, but that at least gives us some place to go and, and frame the conversation. So without that sandbox or framing, it's very hard to really just go to a customer and say, today we're gonna talk about problems. Um, it's not, not gonna be very effective. Okay, so you can't just go to customers and say, let's talk about your problems. But what are you supposed to say to customers? How should you be approaching these conversations? Yeah, that's a really good question because how you frame the conversation with customers, it matters. You don't have a leading conversation. Sometimes what you say uh, to ask your customers to have a conversation, even that alone can kind of be leading. Yeah, so what's Ash's take on how to approach customers to have these conversations? There's kind of newer thinking there. But previously, I would go to customers and say, you know, I'm exploring this problem space. Let's talk about the problems. And I'll use the word problem a lot. The challenge there is that it puts, puts a spotlight on the problem. And a customer can talk at length about the problem, but we sometimes miss the forest for the trees. When we even build something that solves that problem, they come back and say, oh, I can't adopt this because there's these other competing interests or priorities, right? So we miss that that context. And so this is where, when I'm having a conversation with a customer today, I don't, one of the, the tests that, that I, I try to put myself through is not even bring up the word problem. We try to reframe the conversation around outcomes or desired outcomes. So if they come with a feature request, rather than saying, let's focus on the problem, I'll instead say, let's just take a step back and talk about what you're really trying to do here. Tell me the, the before, during, and after story. So when you've got this thing, you know, why are you asking for this? So that's their point A. And then the top of the hill, what are you looking to achieve? And focusing on a desired outcome is the way that I like to frame that conversation. And along the way, 
the, the, the friction or the problems or the obstacles that they mention, that's where I'm, I'm making notes of problems, but we're not like putting that spotlight on it, which is, as like I said, a more advanced way, but I find it disarms the customer and it also just puts us on the same page as they are because they are trying to get a job done or an outcome achieved. And so it almost says, let's make sure that I heard you right. This is what you're trying to do. And if they say, oh no, that's not what we're trying to do. You can then um, you know, steer the conversation in, in the right direction. Okay, so you can approach your customers in a way that's inviting them to focus on their problems without you know, saying, hey, we wanna talk about your problems, but there's one <laughs> other problem, no pun intended here, Michael. Okay, what's that? The innovator's bias, it isn't just something that we as product people can fall for. Even our customers fall for the innovator's bias and they wanna focus on solutions and cut right to, you know, features and products and basically their wish list for what they want us to launch. That is always a challenge. We're gonna dig in more on that. But first, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Okay, before the break, we're digging into a recent conversation you had with Ash Moira, who's a leader in the tech startup and product space. He's the creator of the Lean Canvas, author of several books. And we were talking about your conversation with Ash centered around what it means to love the problem, not the solution. That's right. And right before the break, we started to get into the innovator's bias, the tendency for people to go right to the solution before really understanding at a very deep level what the key problem actually is that the customer is experiencing. And innovator's bias, it's not just something that we as product people fall for, even our own audiences can have an innovator's bias, right? Yes, and we talk about that more right here. Even customers are prone to the innovator's bias. Uh, and, and that's this love for solution. And so they too, when they see a problem, they quickly jump to, you know, if I could just get this button on the screen, or if I could just get this kind of report, this, this problem goes away. And so they often jump to solutions too quickly. And the danger is that we listen to them. So again, I'm not going to say that's always the case. You could have some amazing customers that give you great problem solution combos and you build it and it and, and things work but that's more from my experience on the rarer side and so this is where some unpacking needs to happen so when solutions when, when customers come to us with solutions one of the best practices that i suggest is trying to contextualize how that solution is going to fit into their workflow what outcome are they trying to drive and sometimes you may find that there is a better way to achieve that outcome. So that would be how, you know, as innovators, as, as product people, we want to understand solution at hand that the customer is coming with, but really get down to the problem and the outcome. I, I sometimes call it the point A and the point B. So what is it that prompted this ask for a solution? What are they trying to do at this top of the hill? If you think of that as where the desired outcome lives, does this solution get them there in the most optimal way? That becomes a question we can start asking ourselves. And if we have a better way, then we might present that to the customer. And then maybe one other thing I'll throw out there is that, two, so there are a number of reasons. One is that I talked about customers will sometimes jump to a solution prematurely, but some of the other reasons is that they may not be aware of possible solution options or inventions out there. Uh, you know, Steve Jobs famously said, it's not the customer's job to tell us what to build or to know what they want. They can tell us what they're struggling with and we at Apple go and figure out how we can we can create a, a, a better uh, solution for them, right? So it's a bit of, bit of that too. 
That is a great Steve Jobs quote. And honestly, it often gets misunderstood. So many people take that quote to mean that Apple didn't really do any customer discovery. They just simply came up with solutions for their customers, but it's not really true. No, Apple does a ton of customer discovery. They actually have a similar viewpoint in a way to Ash. Now they're not going to ask customers what they want, right? But they are going to deeply understand the problems and the pain points of their customers. And then, yeah, it is their job to come up with the solutions. But they have to have that deep understanding of the problem first. And my bet is that this is something that Apple actually cares very much about. And it's one of the reasons they're so good at inventing products. Or innovating products. Is there a difference there? Yeah, actually, yeah. And Ash covers that difference here. The way that I make a distinction first between invention and, and innovation is that invention is finding a new solution, a new way of doing things. This could be technology, a method, a process. And so invention happens. Innovation is taking that new way and and taking it, you know, getting it adopted or taking it to market and getting it into, into the hands of customers. And so the way that I like to search for innovative ideas is talking to customers and finding those spaces where they are currently maybe using a solution to do something, but it is missing the mark. And that's where we search for struggles, obstacles, problems. And innovation is coming and helping get, get that job done with a better solution. So it's a kind of a simplistic way of looking at it, but it is this recognition that there is at the end of the day, something a customer is already trying to do. We are trying to find a better way of getting that done. The best way to get to better is go and talk to them, go and understand where, where they're struggling with their existing solution in place. Ah, well, that's a good distinction. And then yes, Apple seems to be great at both innovating and inventing. And they're a massive company too. And that doesn't necessarily make things easier. No, it doesn't. And there are actually unique challenges that come along with being a big company and trying to do innovative things. And sometimes even getting customer feedback alone as a big company can be a challenge. And that came up in our conversation too. I, I sometimes you know, contrast this with startups. So it's startups struggle because they don't have customers, usually not enough customers to talk to in the beginning larger companies or growing companies kind of create silos. And so they've got the customers, but they create friction between, you know, in those conversations. So that's a big one. And unfortunately, the, the only ways is to start to, to, to ask for bringing some of those walls down. So if it's, if there is a way to um, get customer success folks to partner up with, with you or allow you to sit in on the calls, maybe ask some questions or even get recordings of, what they're doing we're increasingly in this in this world where it's become easier to capture conversations you might already be doing some of those types of things those are all ways to mine those those bits but i would say when i work with larger companies that's one of the things we work on is how can we break down some of those silos and walls so the customer voice is not playing the elephant whisper game but can actually like make it all the way through to the people who need to hear it Okay, let's take one more break here. And when we come back, we'll finish our conversation with Ash about what it means to love the problem. Before the break, we were digging into your conversation with Ash Moira, covering what it means to love the problem, not the solution. And the last part we heard was the unique challenge that larger companies have with getting feedback from customers. Yes, although companies of all sizes 
don't necessarily approach conversations correctly with customers when it comes to collecting feedback. Well, regardless of company size, what is the best way to approach customers for the purpose of getting feedback? Well, let's get Ash's take on this one. Yeah, so I'm a big proponent of quality over quantity, especially in the first round. So when we are initially doing this exploration or discovery work, we don't know what we don't know. And I'd much rather get fewer, deeper conversations, and then we can look for more scalable ways for validating you know, what we have learned. Um, so starting with the survey, for instance, the assumption there is you know the right questions to ask, which I found many times. I figure that out in the first few conversations to begin with. Um, I have to also know the right answers because most surveys are multiple choice. So that's why I don't start there. I will more than likely reach out to a handful of, of customers. And even if you take a step back with any product, being able to create a pool of customers that you can tap into on a regular basis is a, again, one of those best practices. And it doesn't start when you need something from them. It usually starts a lot sooner. Um, so when people sign up to your product, as you're going through onboarding, as you start to deliver value to them and serve them, there's a reciprocity principle that sets in place so that when the time comes and you ask for that conversation, they're happy to, 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 to oblige and get on the phone with you. So that's part of like this, maybe a strategy in building this continuous feedback loop with customers is don't start when you need something, try to start by delivering value first. And then when you are looking to launch a new feature or, or bounce an idea across a customer, you can reach out to those pool of people. And I would much rather, so when we talk about time constraints, yes, I would like to set aside minimum 30 minutes, but ideally 45 to 60 minutes for that initial conversation, just so we can have a lot of depth to it. And it doesn't take a lot of them. In five to 10 conversations, you generally get to a, a good place to to know whether there is something here or not. And then you can start to do some of the more scalable things across your customer base um, and take those answers and turn it into a survey or poll or, or something along those lines. Well, I started to get to the end of our conversation with Ash, but I had to ask him about his book, Running Lean. Now, Running Lean, it was created over 10 years ago, and it's all about what it takes to achieve product market fit for a company or a product. and. Certainly his mantra of love the problem is, is alive and well in that book. But about a year ago, Ash did update his book. Oh yeah, and what did some of the updates entail? Well, Ash gets into that a little bit here. Bringing the spotlight on problems can sometimes exaggerate the customer's reaction to it. Um, but the big one that I would say was a learning is this idea of 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 not trying to validate problems, but rather discover them, right? Using a, a what I like to think of a backdoor technique. And maybe I'll elaborate on that a little bit. So, so when we go to customers and we put in put surveys in front of them, or we tell them to rank the problems on a scale of one to five, um, we get into that same biasing or leading the witness down this path of telling us in some ways what we may expect to hear. Um, if I go on the street and I ask, a bunch of people, how many of you struggle with being healthy, wealthy, and you know being fit? Um, a number of people will say, yes, I'll say on a scale of one to five, how much do you struggle? And I can come back and say, everyone wants to do this. But that's a very kind of biased way of, of, of getting problem validation. So what I've learned over the years is that we can validate solutions very easily. I can put that in front of you and I can measure whether you take it on, use it, do anything with it. But problems have to be discovered. And so it requires a more 
subtle conversation on what, what I had was just describing. And so let's talk about what you're really using, trying to do, and where are you struggling in that in that process? And that would be a more nuanced way. So in the book, you will see a lot of that technique. The other difference between the first, maybe the second edition and the third was um, running into our mutual friend, Bob Moesta, <laughs> and getting exposed to jobs to be done theory and thinking, uh, which I had read about when I was even writing that first edition, but have spent a lot more time in internalizing those models. And so that's a big influence also in, in, the, in the work in the latest book. It's actually a great book. I definitely recommend it. And, and yeah, it was fun to catch up with Ash for this conversation. So yeah, I guess that really can pretty much wrap things up here. Wait, Mike? Yeah? You said before you had a story to finish. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. I had a story to finish. This is true. So I told you about that book that uh, was sort of my product Bible in a way. Like I was really turning to it often to figure out what it meant for that company I was with. Uh, you know, what? how could we approach product management and, and sort of come up with our own way of approaching product that worked for us? And so uh, it was really helpful. And eventually I left that company and went on to lead product at another company. But that book, Running Lean, sort of stayed with me. And then, of course, as I started Product Collective and created Industry, the product conference, I reached out to Ash to introduce myself. I knew it was going to be in Austin, Texas one time, and, and that's where Ash is from. And we ended up having lunch. And that was pretty cool, you know, to be able to hang out with Ash, this person who had no idea this impact that he made on me as an early product person. And then later, Ash began to speak at our conferences. He began to run workshops for us in, in various places. And when Ash came out with the new edition of his Running Lean book, he actually reached out to me and asked if I would be willing to contribute a quote. You know, at the beginning of a book, usually has quotes from like, super smart people totally. that basically say like, you should get this book. It's an awesome book. <laughs> and, you know, kind of kind of add some legitimacy. Well, he asked me to contribute <laughs> a quote in his latest edition of Running Lean. So kind of came around full circle for me, but it's just kind of crazy to look back on that. I mean, that book basically taught me product management. And then there I was contributing my quote for that very book, uh, an updated version of it. And so, yeah, that's kind of me finishing the story here. Oh, man. Such a great story, honestly. Well, I like this throwback episode. It's been a nice change of pace. Yeah, well, hopefully our listeners appreciated it, too. Yes. Well, now we can officially wrap things up. For Mike Belsito, I'm Michael Saka, and this is Rocketship.fm. Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It is your support that keeps the show going. If you can, take a second and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps out the show so much. We're also part of the Podglomerate Network. And if you'd like to listen to more great shows from the Podglomerate, go to thepodglomerate.com to see the full show listings. Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. Go to productcollective.com and get access to our weekly newsletter, live video interviews, Slack community, product job board, and a whole lot more. Again, just go to productcollective.com.